Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am joined today by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, it goes well. How are things with you? We're good. We're getting some rain here today, which is the first time in a long time. I guess we're in a drought, so it's kind of nice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I um, read one of your essays recently online. I saw you tweeted about it. Um, and so it was on the Candidly, and it was about parenting. So... Could you share what that was about? (laughs) Sure. Um, So essentially, I was talking about how, um, so I don't know how much of the audience knows, but I, I, um, I am newly separated as of last May from my husband. So, um, but I'm pretty much the full time parent. And um, what I'm finding as a result is that I drop a lot of balls. And um, I'm a much more, I guess, relaxed parent because I have no choice to be, to be more relaxed. <laughs> and um, what I actually think that it's a good thing. Um, right. I that- and tell people, if you would, so your your son just started college this fall. And then you have, like me, you have a 14-year-old. You have only one. I have two. That uh, j- She just started high school. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I've got four years in between their uh, freshman high school experiences. And I find that the way I parented him was a little bit more or a lot more hands on um, than the way I'm parenting her. And, um, I, you know, I, I've got to say that, that my relationship with her is fantastic. And it, and it might, I don't know, from the outside, it might be like, well, yeah, because you let her do whatever she wants. But, but th- th- that's not really it. It's, it's more just that I, I'm just not so tightly involved in whatever it might be, her grades or um, her friends or how she's dressing or any of those things. And um, I think she appreciates the, what feels like the trust I'm extending to her. And, um, and I find she's just, you know, we, our relationship's a lot, a lot more pleasant and, um, and she seems to be blossoming under the independence. So. um, And I also want to say that I was so pleased when I read the essay to, to find out that because you had had some, you know, real trouble, sounds like really struggling with it over the summer. And my heart really went out to you to be like, oh, going through this separation and having all this conflict with her daughter. So I was pleased that it sounds like the relationship is really on um, much more pleasant ground these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, we don't have the battle of wills that we had going on before. Um, And it just, it just seems to work. And um, I, I mentioned to you right before we get on the recording that here is an example of how this is working. Um, she just texted me from school. She took the PSAT today mm-hmm. and she said, hey, all of my friends are leaving for the day because we're done with the PST. There's really nothing else going on. You always tell me to ask. So I'm asking, do you care if I leave school? And you know what? I think four years ago, I probably would have been like, absolutely, you cannot leave school. You're supposed to be there. I don't care if PSATs are done, but I'm like, okay, fine, go. Um, you know, and the, the school's close to the mall. They'll probably walk over to the mall and hang out at the mall for the next couple of hours. And uh-huh. I, I, I mean, I just green lighted her skipping school, but um, you know, it, what's lost here? Nothing, you know? And I, I have to say that's also reading your essay really highlighted to me the differences between East coast and West coast teen experiences. Well, particularly it stood out to me that your daughter told you, she said, Oh mom, I figured out um, with my, my school practice and eating dinner and getting my homework done. I figured out a way I could get to bed by 11 o'clock. I mean, (laughs) John John doesn't get home from dance until about 6.15 or 6.30, and he goes to bed at 9 or 9.30. Oh, wow. And that, and that, that they're, it's, they just have very little homework. And, that yeah. Like, that's probably how it should be. Um, yeah. And, and then also, so it's PSAT day here in Portland as well, and um, my 
twins go to different high schools and both the schools are letting the kids out at um, as soon as the PSATs are over, even though my freshmen are not taking the PSATs, only at uh, their schools, sophomores and a couple juniors are taking it. But they've decided the school systems decided that, oh, let's have it be, you know, teacher, um, you know, that they're going to have meetings yeah. or something. So they they're letting the kids out. That's awesome. As it mm-hmm. should be. As it should be. I think yeah. you guys have it right. I, you I, know. I just think it's such a pressure cooker out east. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. It sucks. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to my high school reunion this weekend, and I think oh. I'm going to see signs of that as well. You know, oh, to sure. you know, I grew up in Connecticut, so yeah. he, and a lot of the people who will be at reunion are people who either stayed there or live in the Philly area, the D.C. area. And it's just, it's just really, I mean, I've realized there are, um, there are private schools out here and there are highly driven people, but it's just a whole different vibe. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's out yeah. of control. And it's, it's even in my County, what's, what's fascinating and this is too much to get into, but it's just that there are, um, you know, we have this very large public school system here and, um, there's even huge variation in terms of which schools they consider, you know, the good schools versus the bad schools. And it, it's mm. all one school system and, oh. you know, it's all high pressure, but there are degrees of pressure even among the public high schools. So wow. yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. And then the final note, I'm intrigued that you all are experiencing a drought because I thought of you when I heard that story on NPR recently about the um, yeah about Ellicott City yeah yes about the downtown and how it's really dividing pitting neighbor against neighbor about whether to or not to you know do away with some buildings in downtown Main Street to save yes. the the larger community so yeah yeah and due to yes. due to flash floods I should say and that's yes. why it was surprising that you all are having a drought so um, feast yeah. or feast or famine there in Ellicott it, City it really is it really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But, but the upshot is I am just so glad that things with your daughter are working out. And um, it's just, I mean, look at that. It's sort of, I don't know, making lemonade out of lemons that, that, okay, well now you're the solo parent and, or, or largely the solo parent and look, it had a beneficial effect on your relationship with your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm not complaining about that. It's, it's a definite big, big upside. So um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. good. Yes. Thank you. Good. good. Good, 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 good. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, there is no natural tie-in to the topic that we're talking about from that conversation. This one. Yes. Yes. There we go. There we go. There, there's the bridge. There, there's some skipping. Like not too much pressure in areas. So yeah, that works. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. So our guest who, you know, because you've interviewed him for articles that you've written is a gentleman named Brad Stuhlberg, who is a writer, coach, speaker on health, well-being, and performance. Brad is the co-author of several books, including the one we are focusing on today. I need to take a deep breath before I say the entire title. <laughs> the, pa- the Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success, and discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life. Brad writes a popular column for Outside Magazine called Do It Better. He's a dad and an outdoor enthusiast in Oakland, California. And once we take this quick break, Brad will be with us to chat. Thanks for joining us, Brad. I'm so glad we connected on Twitter. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan and looking forward to uh, to being here. Oh, you are a dear, dear man. Um, so you're also the father of a just a wee fellow. Tell us the age of your son and a bit about yourself as an athlete. So Theo is 19 months old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he is quickly becoming the athlete in the household. So um <laughs> It's like uh, I've never been a big fan of CrossFit, but I think that being a parent, if I could somehow commercialize parenting and sell it as CrossFit, um, it does the job. I'm constantly in awkward positions on the borderline of throwing out my back, picking stuff up, um, which I think is CrossFit. Um, <laughs> so my my athletic my athleticism right now is just being a dad. But um, no, in all in all seriousness, I. Uh, I've dabbled a little bit in, in a lot of things. So growing up, I was a power sport athlete. Um, in high school, I played basketball and football. Um, I was a pretty good football player. I, I was recruited to play at some smaller schools, but made the decision that I wanted to go to a, a large university. So um, I went to University of Michigan where I did not play football. And it was there that I kind of got the endurance sport bug. Um, 
and started out with running and then it transitioned into triathlon. So for a good 10 years, um, I tried to get as fast as I could at the half marathon, marathon, and then long course triathlon. Um, and around three months before my son was born, so almost two years ago, um, I, um, I just kind of got, I don't want to say burnt out because it wasn't burnt out, but I felt like I had been fighting against my body for the last 10 years and that my body wanted to be bigger and my body was built for power. Um, so the amount of time that I was putting into training for running and triathlon, um, plus the injuries that I just constantly had to be on top of, um, it was kind of like a second job. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I was about to be a dad, I really only wanted to have one job. Um, <laughs> and I wanted my hobby to be a hobby. Um, but a physical practice is such a big part of my life. My job is a writer. Um, so it's not like I was going to throw physical activity by the wayside. But um, I, I got back into just more traditional strength and conditioning work. Um, so now I spend most of my time exercising either in the gym or um, hiking with my kid on trails. Nice. So, Brad, tell us a little bit about your professional side, too, because I know you had um, quite a career prior to launching off and, and going in the direction you are now. So, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a pretty circuitous path for me. Um, coming out of school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, so um, I went into consulting. Uh, that, that seemed like an area where... If you didn't know what you wanted to do, you could explore many different industries and, and still work with pretty smart and driven people. Uh, so I spent two years at McKinsey & Company, which is a, a large management consulting firm. And um, just kind of organically, I, I got staffed on lots of healthcare projects and started to specialize in healthcare. Um, so at the two-year point, one of the partners at McKinsey that I had developed a really close relationship with uh, took a job at the White House working on healthcare reform. And he asked me if I wanted to come join him. Um, and at this point, I knew that I wanted to go back to graduate school. So there was kind of a natural transition point out of McKinsey anyways. Uh, so I spent some time at the White House. I worked in the National Economic Council um, on healthcare. And this was right around the time that the ACA was being drafted and passed. So it was a, a really interesting time uh, to, to be working on that sort of thing. Um, so then I went to graduate school. I studied public health at the University of Michigan. And um, as, I was, as I was saying, at this point in my life, I was pretty obsessed with endurance sports. Um, so I was interested definitely in, in public health, but also in performance in, in how the intersection of health, performance, and well-being. I kind of viewed those as overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. And uh, coming out of graduate school, I decided to um, that I didn't want to have the lifestyle of McKinsey and Company, which is extremely long hours and lots of travel. Uh, so I took a job at a large healthcare system out here in California um, doing internal consulting. So very similar work to what I had been doing, um, but without the travel and, and without the arduous hours. Um, and in, in, in parallel, I had started this blog in, in graduate school because this was like eight years ago when everyone in their mother, brother, and sister had to have a WordPress blog. <laughs> so I had this blog about my exploits as a triathlete. Um, what's funny is that like no one read that blog but me. Uh, I'm, I'm positive, but it, what it was is it was a regular writing practice. And what I didn't know is that I really liked writing. Um, I, I probably liked writing about what I was doing more than actually doing it. Um, so at, uh, at, at Kaiser, which is the large healthcare system I worked for, um, I, on a lot of the projects that I worked on, I was kind of always the, the point person for the written work and the communication. And, um, about five and a half years ago, I was working on a project about end-of-life care. So how do we care for people that are approaching, um, approaching their deaths in a, in a compassionate way? And at the same time, my grandmother in Michigan, which is where I grew up, was experiencing um, stage four lung cancer. and She was dying. And the care that she was receiving in Michigan was just so dramatically different and worse than the program that we were building uh, out here in California. And being totally naive to how any of this stuff works, I wrote an op-ed and sent it to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Los Angeles Times. 
Mm. And the LA Times ended up running the piece on a Sunday, and it was one of their most read essays uh, of the year. And from there, people just started asking me to write. Um, And I just said yes, because I really liked writing. So uh, gradually over time, what ended up happening is this thing that was a naive kind of shot in the dark, became a hobby, became a part-time job, became a side hustle, um, became now my full-time job. Wow. Okay. I guess the other interesting thing that I left out, um, and I've covered this a little bit in my book around, you know, you don't have to specialize early, is if you would have asked me at age 17 um, what I wanted to be or what I was going to do, I would have totally said that I wanted to be a writer. So I really liked writing in high school. And I applied to um, Northwestern's journalism program, which, which is by far the best in the country. And I didn't get in. Hmm. And as a 17-year-old, I just kind of assumed like, oh, didn't get in. Like, I guess writing's not for me. I'm going to go on this kind of business economics path. Um, and then I did that for five years. So, so there was a part of me, I think, that always liked writing. Um, it just goes to show that, like, you know, as a junior or senior in high school, um, you assume, oh, I didn't get into that program. I guess it's not for me. And, and here we are full circle and, and I'm doing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. crazy how it works out. Um, and, and so you do some sort of coaching as well, correct? Yeah, so so I do. So what happened is after my first book, um, Peak Performance, came out, uh, a handful of executives started asking me if I'd come meet with them to, to talk through the, some of the challenges that they're experiencing both in their work and their lives. Um, and um, they asked me if I would be interested in coaching them. And... Um, I was very honest and transparent at the time. I said, you know, I've, I've, I've done this kind of executive counseling before at McKinsey, but it was always as a part of a larger team or a larger organization. Um, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. So I it, it literally started with like three local clients that had read my book that wanted me to help them out. And then through word of mouth, um, I kind of developed a coaching practice. So now I, I coach about uh, 20 individuals, uh, primarily executives and a lot of physician leaders, just from my experience in healthcare. And then I've also worked with a few athletes, um, all on kind of mindset, mental skill stuff, none of the physical stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Well, before we really dive into your book and the topics in there, I have to ask about the tattoo on your bicep. Um, it looks like a wrench rising out of green leaves with like a little birdie perched on one of the plants. So what's the significance of that image to you and like where'd it come from? So that, I'm glad you asked. Um, that image is the cover art from uh, a book called Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, all right. Uh-huh. That was written by Robert Persig. I think it was, uh, I know actually, it was first published in 1974. Uh, in that book, um, like absolutely changed my life. I, I read mm. that book in undergraduate school and that was kind of where I, I became really interested in philosophy and these intellectual ideas. Um, and my, my whole life philosophy, spirituality, whatever you want to call it, was born out of, uh, out of reading that book. So it's a teaser. So it's a great book. If, if you're into reading, I highly recommend it. Um, and it's it's a novel, but it's also a philosophy book. And um, Perseg, his basic goal is to kind of merge Eastern and Western thought, and then Eastern and Western spirituality. Um, and it's it's a beautiful book. I I really you know I could go on and on, and I wouldn't do it justice. So if you're into that kind of thing, I highly recommend you pick it up. Yeah, I mean, you definitely hear a lot about it in in culture. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you do currently, but I mean, he's, I don't know, like it gets referenced in movies or, you know, yeah, people say it's it was one of those books that gained yeah. a cult following right. back in the seventies. And I, right. obviously I didn't come across it until like 2004, the early two thousands. Um, but yeah, yeah, phenomenal book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really seminal for a lot of people. Yeah. So interesting that, that then it became a tattoo on your arm. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. So um, let me ask the boil it all down question. Um, What is the passion paradox? So the passion paradox, um, it is is my most recent book that I wrote (laughs) with um, my collaborative partner, Steve Magnus. And in a nutshell, the, the passion paradox is this, that passion can be a gift and passion can be a curse. 
in whether it's romantic passion or passion for an activity like running or passion for career progress, it can be a really, really good thing that brings all kind of joy and meaning and fulfillment to someone's life. Or it can be a really, really bad thing that leads to suffering, anxiety, depression, cheating, and burnout. Um, so the answer, is passion a good or a bad thing, is it depends. And in the common culture over the last decade, passion has solely been portrayed in this very positive self-help, find your passion, follow your passion kind of light. Um, but no one really said what that means, how to do it. And, and few people glossed, um, or excuse me, not few people, everybody has glossed over some of the downsides of passion um, that are affecting more and more uh, athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, doctors, you name it, really any, conf any field that draws competitive people. Hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So do you think it's possible as a parent to go all in on a passion, like without negatively impacting or overburdening the family? So I, th I think, again, there the answer is it depends. I, th I think it depends on how you define all in. Um, mm. So there, rest has to be a part of going all in. So whether you're running a company or running a marathon, you can't just do the thing all the time. You'll, you'll burn out. And, and there's all kinds of evidence that supports that. Um, so I don't, I don't think of all in as necessarily a 24-7 thing. I think of all in much more as level of focus and attention towards one thing. Um, so I do think it's possible to go all in on something other than parenting at the same time that you're a parent. I think that what that means is you have to have really, really, really clear boundaries in view the time that you're quote unquote parenting is rest from the thing that you're going all in on. And then the time that you're going all in on that thing is rest from parenting. I think where it gets hard and people don't necessarily want to face these trade-offs is to have a full social life, to be able to watch, um, you know, all these great TV shows in the golden era of TV, to read three <laughs> novels, to start a business, to run a sub three marathon and to be the perfect parent. Mm -hmm. um, I, that I don't think is possible. Um, I think maybe you can juggle two of those things, maybe three at the same time, but you, you, you can't be great at everything at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. So um, tell us the difference between obsessive passion and harmonious passion, and, and especially um, since this is running related, especially as it can relate to running. So I, I, I'm glad that you asked. I think this is one of the, the biggest, you know, within the paradox of passion, there's all these more, more minor paradoxes. So I think this is one of the big ones is, um, is this difference between harmonious and obsessive passion. So harmonious passion is when you are passionate about and love something because you love the activity itself. Obsessive passion is when you are passionate about and love something because you like the external validation that that activity brings you. So this is the difference between running because you love running and running because you want to post on social media about your PR. Um, now, What's interesting about this is unless you have tons and tons of spiritual experience, just about everyone cares about external results and what other people think of them. Um, our evolution hardwired us to care about this stuff. So it's not about totally shutting that down. It's just about making sure that that doesn't become the primary source driving your behavior. Um, it's okay to want to perform well. It's okay to share your race results on social media. It's okay to feel really good when you PR. Uh, as a writer, if I write a best-selling book, it feels great to have that public notoriety. But that should never be the driving reason that one runs or one writes. Because if it is, what ends up happening is when the tides change and things don't go so well, you're totally lost. Your entire sense of self-worth, your connection to the activity that you once loved, it can all go by the wayside. So then what happens is you end up with a lot of anxiety, trying to protect those results that, that you're so attached to, um, or you end up burning out, or in some cases, you end up cheating. I think Lance Armstrong is like the best example of obsessive passion. Mm. If you look early on in his career, he was just in love with the sport. And then as he started to perform well, he got more and more attached to the results and the fame and the recognition of the sport and started to love that more than the sport itself. So when his performance suffered, 
he did whatever he had to do to close that gap so he could keep getting that external uh, validation. Um, and then I know that, you know, I, I, at least my understanding is a lot of parents listen to this podcast. I think another really timely example of this is the recent college admission scandal. Mm -hmm. So that is like 101 obsessive passion for parenting, right? Mm -hmm. You care less about like the actual work of parenting and raising your kid and more about being able to say that my kid got into an Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. So you commit fraud to get them there. Yeah. And look at Felicity Huffman serve. She just started serving her two weeks in prison. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, the, and now these are extremes. Like I yeah. doubt, I, I would imagine that listeners are not, um, although who knows, but, but, and if you are, please get help, but hopefully listeners on, of the show are not, are not doping their blood and cheating and running or committing fraud <laughs> to get their kids into school. Mm -hmm. Um, but this, this obviously happens in much more subtle ways that you're not going to get arrested for, but are not healthy for you. Um, so are you constantly checking Strava to see like if people are commenting on your run? Um, are you all on social media and, and do you judge the rest of your day based on how many people liked your post or commented on your workout? Uh, if you have a bad workout, do you let that ruin your day? Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is that, that people think that you need to be like so focused on those external results to be great but it's actually the opposite. Like the less that you focus on that stuff, the better chance you have it being great. Because the more focused you are on that stuff, A, the more tense and tight you are. And most people do not tend to perform their best from a place of being tense and tight. And then B, and equally important, is you end up spending more time worrying about and checking the thing than actually doing the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is the runner that's literally wasting heartbeats, like stressing about what people are going to think of the race results instead of saving those heartbeats for the race itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when I was reading the passion paradox, I just kept my mind kept drifting back to this exercise streak that I had that went on for about five years. I, um, you know, set up the limits myself and it had to be, um, exercising for at least 30 minutes a day. Um, and um, i had a whole bunch of other codicils to it, but that was pretty much the gist of it. And I was thinking about how difficult it is to, it was for me to find an off ramp from it. And yeah. so, you know, and I think that about run streaks when I meet people, you know, it's, it's one thing to be like, Oh, okay. You know, this group is organizing, you know, and, uh, you know, no missed runs November, something like that, you know, maybe a better name than that, but that, that, um, that then you like, okay, I'm going to run for a mile, at least a mile a day for the month of November. Then you have a clear end point, but gosh, sometimes I meet people who are on a run streak and they just are so clinging to it so hard. And I know exactly what that feels like mm -hmm. because so much of myself was tied up in it. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you think run streaks are an example of passion that has gotten the better of us? I think, again, it depends. So um, the definition or, or, or one definition of passion that I really like is um, the relentless pursuit of something mm -hmm. with productive consequences. Mm -hmm. And a definition of addiction that is widely accepted is the relentless pursuit of something despite negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think there's the rub. If your run streak is bringing productive consequences to your life, Mm -hmm. then I actually think that can be a good harmonious passion. Mm. If the run streak is bringing negative consequences to your life, then it's probably not great. Mm -hmm. um, and that could look very different for two people. The person that's in recovery from substance abuse disorder that is running every day for five years, and that's a part of their sobriety, it probably doesn't matter that they occasionally miss family result. Uh, excuse me, they occasionally miss family events to run mm -hmm. because it's keeping them sober. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The person that's on that run streak for no other reason than to stroke their ego and is like constantly letting friends down and skipping out on travel and doing all sorts of things so they can run mm -hmm. and they feel like crap if they miss the run, mm -hmm. then yeah, like I would, I would really step back and be like, well, why are you doing this? And does it really matter if you run 999 days out of a thousand versus a thousand out of a thousand? Not mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so I think, the con I think the context is key there. Mm -hmm. um, another way to think about this stuff is, does what you do control you or do you control it? Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you're a slave to that run streak, not mm -hmm. very sustainable, probably not great from a mindset perspective over the long haul. If mm -hmm. you feel like you're in full control of it and you're doing it because you want to, not because you need to, it's probably a pretty healthy thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So dialing things back a little bit, 
for newer runners, how can they foster or even find the passion um, for running so that they can make it a habit they stick with? So big misconception um, is that you find your passion mm. and it's, it's literally the, the title or the subtitle of, you know, tens of maybe even a hundred self-help mm -hmm. books about finding your passion. Yeah. Uh, but you don't actually find a passion. The research shows that you develop it and expecting mm. to find a passion, um, almost like lightning striking and, and magically you find this activity that you love and you're great at and it's, it's happily ever after from there on out. Uh, that mm -hmm. gets in the way of developing long-term passions because what happens is mm. you expect things to be perfect from the get-go and then when they change or when they become challenging, you just say, oh, this, this must not be for me this must not be my passion because it's hard or because I'm not great at it. So I'm going to move on and try the next thing. Um, I think you get this a lot with like perpetual exercise switchers who go from running to CrossFit to weightlifting to cycling to swimming to Zumba to dance back to running. Um, <laughs> because when things get hard or when things don't go well, they switch again because they assume, well, this must not be the right thing for me. Um, so I think a big part of it is just having some patience and shifting your mindset from running is going to feel great right away and going to feel great all the time to this is something I'm going to have to develop and I'm going to have good days and bad days. And I should actually evaluate this over the course of one year, five years, 10 years, not one day, one week, one month. Um, mm. I, I'm a big research guy. So some of the, the fascinating research in this book is that the literature on romantic love and passion and passion for an activity like running totally mirrors itself. So in romance, mm. people that have what's called a destiny belief system of love, which is that they have one single soulmate and they're going to find that person and they're going to immediately fall in love. They're much, much, much more likely to end up single because they have such a high bar, they're searching for Miss or Miss Perfect, like the Disney movies tell us to do. But Miss or Miss Perfect doesn't exist. Like perfect isn't something that you find, it's something that you build and develop over time. And the same thing is true in the research on activities. People that expect an activity to feel great from the get-go, they're much less likely to develop long-term passions. Whereas people that can lower the bar to this is interesting, or this is challenging, or I like components of this, I'm gonna keep at it they're much more likely to actually have long-term passions. So that actually reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the book that I underline. It says, those who go big or go home often end up going home. Those who go, go incrementally over a long period of time often end up with something big. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm glad that, that you like that line. I, I like that line too. Um, <laughs> I think it gets to the heart and, and you guys are asking great questions that are uncovering this of, of um, there's just been so much BS out there on this really like important concept of passion um, that, you know, find your passion. Well, actually, you, you don't find it. You have to develop it. And just expecting to find it actually gets in the way. Uh, follow your mm -hmm. passion. Well, like we discussed, maybe follow your passion, um, but you actually kind of want your passion to follow you. You want to be in control. Um, mm -hmm. You know, chase the results. Yeah, to a point, chase the results. But again, you don't want to become a slave to them. Um, Gary Vee, who's like one of these bro self-help dudes, is always like, you know, <laughs> you got to go big. It's like, no, actually, like, if you go small and consistently, uh, you'll, you'll fare better. Uh, another myth in the book is that you have to be, like, young and um, willing to fail and kind of naive to, to have great success. Uh, that's a very common myth. The research shows that founders of successful companies tend to be between the age of 45 and 50. Um, mm -hmm. Why? Because they have more wisdom, they have more experience, and they have more patience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As the, as the middle-aged owner of a small business, I really like that part of the book. That was appealing to me as well. <laughs> yes, that really yeah. resonated with the middle-aged mom crowd. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a kind of... Um, and this is maybe going going off on a tangent a little, um, but I think there's a kind of humility that comes with being a middle-aged mom or or middle-aged dad, right? Oh, like sure. life uh -huh. kind yeah. of beats you up and shows you that you 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 can't go big or go home. <laughs> um, sure. And mm -hmm. I think that intellectually you can understand that, but until you experience what it's like to have a sick kid and have to balance the budget of your startup and still want to you know run and do all these things, um, you get humbled. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I, mm-hmm. I say this all the time and I don't know, you might want to edit this out, but I always say that, that, you know, by this point in life, um, people have been through some shit and, and that it is, it's such a gift actually to have been through that. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot, a lot of value that comes from it, but, um, so, um, switching gears a little bit here, you know, when we talk about running, um, there's, you know, inevitably some, um, disappointment, especially if it's something you're invested in. So, um, what advice would you offer up to those who maybe are struggling with a missed time goal or a DNF or, or, you know, something along those lines? What, what, what advice do you offer those, those folks? So I love this question. You're asking great ones, Amanda. Um, so this, um, there's a poet who, whose work I reference in the book a little bit named David White, who um, says that the things that you care about will break your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. when you really care about something, you make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. So it's a lot easier mm-hmm. to go through the motions and just, um, oh, like I'm, I don't really care about running and to shield yourself from actually giving it your all and caring. Because when you give something your all and you care, like things don't always go well. And when they don't, it's going to hurt. Uh, so the first thing that comes up for me is not to judge yourself. Um, like let it hurt and be okay with the fact it's hurting and, and don't, don't, don't tell yourself that story of, oh, people are dying of cancer and here I am upset about my race results. Um, that's true, but it doesn't change what you're feeling in the moment. So give yourself permission mm-hmm. to, to hurt and know that the reason that you're down is because you really cared about it. Um, and then mm-hmm. the second thing that I would say is do that for between 24 and 48 hours, but then get back on the horse. There is nothing mm-hmm. better after a tough loss than just getting back to the work itself. Uh, the same thing is true after a big win. If you crush a PR, let yourself celebrate. Don't, don't just move on from it, but only, only let yourself celebrate hard for two days. Uh, then get back to the work. Because what, what we're trying to do with this is, again, like what you really want to love is running, not the results, good or bad. Yeah. Um, so it's mm-hmm. about coming back to the thing itself and not giving your mind-body system the chance to like latch on to the grief of a misresult or to the joy of a successful result. But actually what you want your mind-body system to latch on to is how much you like running. Um, mm. And then the third thing that I'd say is uh, surround yourself with a supportive community. Uh, the better mm-hmm. you become at the sport, the more important I think this is uh, because other people have been there and have gone through those ups and downs and can kind of like hold you during the downs and, and also keep you grounded during the ups. Um, for some of the more elite athletes that I've worked with, one of the most important things that we cover is just making sure that you have other people there that get it. Like if you're, if you're an Olympic caliber runner, you want to know people that have been Olympic caliber runners and that have come up short. Um, because they'll be there for you when, when shit hits the fan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that makes me jump. But that coming to back to the work, like- I, I, sorry to interrupt. Oh. I should really reiterate that because like, I can't stand when people say, Oh, well put it in perspective. Things could always be so much worse. You could say that about anything. Like, unless you are like a starving refugee in Syria, things could always be worse. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't really mm-hmm. give you anything productive to do. Um, so I, I'm much, and this isn't just in running, this is, this isn't anything with an external result. I'm, I, I much more prefer to say like, yikes, like it sucks that you're hurting right now. The reason that you're hurting is because you care. And the best thing that you can do is let yourself hurt for a short period of time. Don't repress it. There's all kinds of research that shows repressing these emotions backfires, but put a time bound on it and then actually get back to doing the activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So you, you talked about community there, which um, I copied a tweet that you put out the other day that really just hit the bullseye with me on so many levels. So I'm once again, I'm going to read it. You wrote, progress is often slow, nonlinear, and more challenging than you think. Popular culture says it should be fast, predictable, and easy. Ignore this. Be patient. Surround yourself with a supportive community. Remember that the goal is the path and the path is the goal. So there's so much that I could talk about here, but um, since we are another mother runner talking about the importance of having a supportive community when it comes to being consistent with exercise and training for a goal, you know, that's like kind of the heart of what we're all about here. So could you talk, expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, community, um, community is everything. There's, um, I'm going to tell a a little parable. So uh, the... In, in, in Buddhism, um, it's alleged that the, the Buddha had uh, a loyal attendant named Ananda. 
And one of my favorite stories in Buddhism is Ananda goes up to the Buddha and says, you know, Buddha, dear, dear master, I've heard that having close friends is 50% of the spiritual path. How can that be true? Is that true? And the Buddha looks at Ananda and says, no, it is not true, Ananda. Having close friends is 100% of the spiritual path. And I just love that because I think it's so true for anything. Like, you know, it, even if you're running professionally to win medals, and certainly if, if you're, you know, just running as a hobby, like the, the point of this is to grow as an individual, to experience joy, to, to, to experience lows, to have something that brings meaning to your life that keeps you healthy. And the best way to do that is just to surround yourself with supportive people. Um, because like no one reflects back on running 50 years into the sport and talks about like their PRs. They generally talk about the people that they ran with. And then, you know, going down a couple thousand feet from more of like the esoteric spiritual look at running to just the day to day, um, community is so important for keeping you on the path of, of running and, and holding you accountable. Um, if you're meeting up with other people, it's a lot harder to ditch the workout. Um, when things go really crappy, it's a lot harder to quit when you've got other people there to support you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so much more fun. Like, you know, mm-hmm. forget all this performance <laughs> stuff. When, when you run with other people, it is so much more fun. I think that something that mm-hmm. happens to a lot of runners is we, t- and, and I think this is made worse in the era of, um, of all this data and tracking is we tend to fixate on like needing to hit this exact pace or this exact heart rate. So we do our workouts alone when the benefit mm-hmm. of running with a group, even if you're a little bit off in either direction, your prescribed pace is so much better because you're actually going to enjoy the workout more. Yeah. Cheers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you recently wrote about aging and long-term performance and um, you said that you can proactively take steps to ensure you keep experiencing peak performance and fulfillment as you age. Can you share a few um, steps or words of wisdom on how to do that? On how to like keep experiencing peak performance and fulfillment as you yes, age? Please. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm 33. Am I 33 or 34? I think I'm 33. <laughs> it's funny. See, I don't pay much attention to age. I'm pretty sure I'm 33. Um, so something that, um, that one of my best friends who's, who's older than me, I think he's like 40, often talks about is that um, chronology and biology, they separate. So chronology is just a concept that we made up. It's like literally like, um, you know, Earth's movement around the sun. And every time that happens, you have this new number. It says nothing of, of your vitality nothing of your, your, your physical fitness, nothing of your mental fitness, nothing of your actual life experience. There are 60-year-olds that are physically and mentally much sharper than 30-year-olds, and there are 40-year-olds that are like 80-year-olds. Um, so the first thing that I'd say is like release from this concept of age. Now, obviously, like you have to get mm. through the day, and, and when you go to the doctor, they ask you how old you are. So it's, you don't want to say like, well, age is just a concept. <laughs> I, I have no real age. Um, but try not to put too much weight into it is a part of your identity. Um, and then the second thing is I think it's really important, and we talked about this a little bit with starting a company, to realize that um, as you age – your in 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 what I am going to say hopefully isn't controversial because there's a lot of evidence like when you get older your raw talent declines it declines physically and it declines mentally um, at different rates for for mental and physical but like those are actual trends I think mentally your cognitive flexibility starts to go down right around age 25 and I think physically depending on the sport things decline between 20 and 40 um, but what goes up is your wisdom. And the only way that you get wisdom is through experience. And I think that in the culture, we're, we're way too quick to dismiss the importance of wisdom and just assume like, oh, you have to be like super sharp mentally, or um, you have to be like at the peak of your physical condition. But if that was true, then the average age of a founder would be 23, not 45. And Roger Federer, Shalane Flanagan, Serena Williams, 
Tom Brady, Meb Kafleski, Bernard Lagat, like I could go on and on. Um, they wouldn't be winning championships. Um, so I think mm-hmm. um, just remembering that as you age, like you're gaining this important asset, which is wisdom through lived experience that makes a huge difference. Um, and then for, for those that are listening that are like, ah, this Brad guy is like way too spiritual. Um, <laughs> practically speaking, <laughs> go up in distance. Like the ability to problem solve mm. and lean on wisdom increases the longer the race. So if you're running, if you're if you're running sprints, like you're just going to get slower as you get older. Sorry, <laughs> if you're running if you're running the mile and the five k, same thing's probably true. But if you start running marathons or ultra marathons, let me tell you, like wisdom is almost more important than raw speed and talent because you have to be problem solving out there. You have to be able to work through dark periods of time. Um, so I think that, that there's a real component of going up in distance, the older that you get. We like the sounds of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Brad. Well, we could sit here and talk with you all day, but, um, we're just going to have to cut it off here, but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I hope it's helpful to, uh, to those of you out there listening. All right. Well, let's hear what dim and the train like a mother club is up to. Hey everybody, it's Dimity here with your Train Like a Mother Club corner. And of course, we have to have a marathon race report after such an exciting weekend at the Chicago Marathon. This is from Marsha, who ran Chicago using the Running by Heart Rate Marathon program coached by Jennifer Harrison and Elizabeth Waterstrat. Um, it's kind of long, she cautions us, but I say, Marsha, you ran a marathon. And so guess what? You get to write a long race report. So hang in there, guys, because it's a good one. She says, my secret A goal that I had been afraid to vocalize because it made it real was 455 and my B goal was 459 and my C goal was to run the entire race, especially getting through the mile 20 mark and feeling good at the end. I was a minute or so over my 450 goal and a minute or so under a 455 pace for the majority of the race. The GPS in Chicago is really off, so I relied on my time each mile, not my pace. Luckily, the race pace miles we did in the heart rate training really helped me run by feel. Around mile 17, I came upon the 450th pace group and kept them in my sight for much of the remainder of the race. In past marathons, mile 20 was where I started to feel it physically and mentally, but not this time. I just looked at my watch and thought I'll be done in a little over an hour and I just pretended like it was another 65 minute run like I do in training. Plus, my family was just before mile 22 which kept me going and the crowds in Chicago are amazing. I missed the mile 23 marker which was a blessing because I thought I was losing time and then bam, there was the mile 24 and at that point, tight quads and all, I went for it and successfully passed the 450 pacer as I turned the corner for my last sprint to the finish line. My official time was 4.50.05, so four hours, 50 minutes, and five seconds. My average pace was a 10.43, and I negative split. A year ago, I ran the New York City Marathon in 5.31, and this weekend, I had a PR of 41 minutes. That is awesome. Congratulations, Marsha. I am still on such a runner's high. I am so grateful to this running by heart rate training. Honestly, my biggest concern before I signed up for this training was the fact that we didn't run 20 miles, but I also understood the logic behind a three-hour cap. I absolutely love this program. I love the variety, and I love that it was personalized to my own heart rate. And the progressive runs and goal pace miles that were done on the long runs allowed me to see what I was capable of and not be afraid to hurt. I've always been a little afraid of speed and hurting, and yet I've always wanted to go fast, and I'm not so afraid anymore. Thanks to coaches Liz and Jenny for your support. Good luck to everyone training. You will all do great. Now, what is next, she asks. Marsha, that's awesome. That just makes, I, I put in the comments, it gives me the chills reading that because, geez, it's just so cool to have a race executed like that. So hats off to you. Great job. Hope everybody else is having some really chill-inducing miles this week, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Well, um, if you are kind of dreading the return of um, winter weather, fall, darker days, you know, cold rain, you got to think about joining us at Rancho La Puerta 
on our retreat. What about me, Sarah? Do I get to go this time? You do not, Alex. Dang it. (laughs) It is mother runners and women runners only. Um, So, or even, you know, you don't even have to be a runner because it is, this is our retreat that is just so broadly focused. It is set at Rancho La Puerta. It is so rejuvenating. We get to do all these classes. You would really love, you know. sounds amazing. Oh my gosh. You have really no idea. You have no idea. I should have some babies and start running. <laughs> um, I mean, so it's this 4,000 acre property. It's just south of and a little bit east of San Diego. It's just so beautiful. It's surrounded by mountains. It's these wonderful haciendas all scattered across these beautifully landscaped gardens with paths and um, a great swimming pool that I enjoyed swimming in, you know, it's outdoors and then just, but more than 50 classes a day, Alex, can you imagine 50 classes a day? Okay. So, and in our retreat, Whoa. everything's included your room, all meals, and they are the tastiest, tastiest, healthiest meals. Oh my gosh. The two are not mutually exclusive. Um, I can't wait to have their Mexican hot chocolate. It's just this huge vat of it at- <laughs> It's like, how many times can I go back and refill my mug? Um, So, and also included, you get one ranch classic massage, a hands-on cooking class, um, uh, a group happy hour this year. That's new from what we did last year. We're going off site because I kind of felt like, like, yes, I knew um, that I was in Mexico, but I didn't really feel like I was in Mexico. So we're going to go into town and go to happy hour. Um, There's hikes, there's runs if you want, there's presentations, um, and also included is round trip uh, shuttle from the San Diego airport. Airfare's not included, and neither are additional spa services, which I guarantee you are going to want. Um, and also added this year is every day we're going to have one AMR only class per day. It is truly heaven on earth. So for more details, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on events on the top navigation, and choose Rancho, Rancho La Puerta from the drop-down menu. Again, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on events at the top nav, choose Rancho La Puerta from the drop-down menu. And I hope to see you uh, down there in February. Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy miles. <laughs> <laughs>